Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. I'm Lucia Holsether here with my co-host, Tina Pippin. This month, we are thrilled to welcome Eleni Shermer to the podcast. Let me be the first to say we could hardly contain ourselves when she said yes. Eleni is a scholar of labor, social movements, and the political economy of education. A PhD candidate in the Department of Education Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and currently a research associate with the Penn State Center for Global Workers' Rights, she's won numerous awards for her teaching and research. Her book manuscript in process concerns the long history of social justice teacher unionism in Milwaukee. We cannot wait to read this book, um, but in the meantime, we've been reveling in Eleni's academic writing and her popular writing. She's been published in um, the Boston Review, The New Yorker, Descent, and most recently in The Nation, which in November 2020 published her game-changing article on the debt crisis in universities. Eleni organizes around all of these issues, including a stint as the co-president of the Teaching Assistance Association, the nation's oldest graduate employee union in Wisconsin. Um, we feel incredibly fortunate that amid all of her commitments, she's made time to be in conversation with us. So without further ado, welcome Eleni. Gosh, I almost recognize that person. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be here. It's an honor. Yeah, well, thank you for, for doing this with us. Um, so first question, what brought you to your work in education and labor justice? Uh, theories, mentors, movements, those yeah. things. And I see you're, you know, you're situated in Wisconsin and that is sort of, for me, ground zero for a lot of things, activist education-wise, especially rethinking schools, for example. That's so, right, yeah, that's right. Tell us how you um, well, I started basically because I was uh, graduated from a small liberal arts college in 2008 with a degree in American studies and was highly um, unemployable in a bad labor market. And I had I was waitressing and bartending for a few years after undergrad and had to pay a lot of money for um, health insurance premiums. And realized at this point in time, there was a law in the state of Wisconsin. My dad is a was a uh, state employee that I could get access to get back on my parents' health insurance. Basically, if I became a, if I enrolled in a certain number of credits as a student, so I paid. It was cheaper in the long run. This is <laughs> too much detail, but basically, to get health insurance, I became a special student, and from a it was far more interesting to pay money to learn things than just to work over money for like a Cobra plan or whatever. Um, and then on a whim, I kind of applied to study with someone who I was working on research and educational psychology around forgiveness. And I had been sort of involved in um, some school to prison pipeline work uh, and challenging you know, sort of critical resistance style stuff. And I was interested in this idea of forgiveness as a corollary of justice. <clears throat> so I've worked with him, but it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly. Um, I should say I applied to do a graduate program with this, this man and was lucky enough to get in and get funding and get health insurance. This was like really the premium. Like I was so, so on the idea of going to graduate school. I was really interested in having better health insurance. Um, 
So, but it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that educational psychology wasn't a very good fit for me. It was just uh, too positivistic for my, it didn't, it wasn't getting at the questions that I was interested in. But during this time, this was my first semester of graduate school. This it's the winter of 2011. Um, the Scott Walker the, was the governor of Wisconsin at that time passed this surprise bill that curtailed public sector um, bargaining rights and for, for unions in Wisconsin. And I became very, very involved with the protests um, and organizing in my graduate union. And, and it was just, it was incredibly, it was politically formative for me. It was intellectually formative for me. It was one of these moments that was sort of like a biographical pivot. Like that was a moment of a, a turning point for me. Um, <clears throat> and I, the, I had realized I had really serious questions. You know, my, my, my parents, my mom's a school nurse. My dad worked for, as, for the state health department. I went to public schools. This was like the attack on the sort of the public sector was very much uh, one that felt, you know, my was was intimate for me. It was not sort of an abstract set of political questions. And I began to realize that I had a lot of questions about what was it that was making public sector unions so vulnerable to attack by these conservative groups. And also in Wisconsin, why were they so feeble to fight back? And that was that struck me as sort of a paradox. Why were, why were they on the one hand, sort of public enemy number one, and on the other hand, seemingly without really like as much as a paperclip to fight back with, they were really got sort of our butts whooped. And so I wanted, I realized that I wanted to, to, um, read as much as I could and talk to people smarter than me and um, try to kind of like puzzle to figure out those questions. So that's what I, that's basically the, the, the path that um, I went on in my, in my uh, graduate program. That's such a good story. I mean, I think for so many of us, the nexus of losing our health insurance and then having some sort of politicizing moment is, um, you can tell a very similar story. And I know so many people in um, Yale's graduate union that I came through that, that could tell the same story. Um, so I love the way that you've kind of given us your almost kind of political biography that has led into your research. So let's just keep talking about that. Um, you've written a lot about the history of teachers unions and the ways, and particularly in Wisconsin, and the ways that their notions of collectivity and collective action have changed over time. So I'm, for our listeners who are less familiar with that, I'm wondering if you can sort of just give us a, give us a rundown of your research. Um, and I think particularly it might be helpful to talk about what are some of the historical precedents you're looking at for contemporary teacher unionism and what can we learn from those histories? Yeah, absolutely. So I should say one of the reasons why education and public education became sort of a point of interest for me is that it is, I am of the opinion that it is arguably the only institution in American society in which equality is deemed a valuable asset. And not just it's a, it's a, it's a positive, a net good, but it's actually a goal that orients a lot of policy programs and initiatives from No Child Left Behind to sort of 
ad nauseum concern about the achievement gap. So in the middle of a, of a society that's utterly unconcerned about equality in virtually every other facet of, you know, from income inequality to access to safe and healthy living conditions, we have education as this sort of sort of utopia in the middle of a, a, at least it has some kind of utopian ideals in that institution. And so that's what interests me is this, I see it as sort of a Trojan horse, like, okay, you can start to talk about equality in schools and you can have conversations about equality in schools that people wouldn't be willing to have about other important uh, social institutions. Um, and this is sort of one of those like premises for my research is to look at how it, it creates something of a contradiction because we allow inequality to ravage outside of schools, but we expect it to exist in schools. And in the some of the historical arc of this is that my research kind of starts more or less around the middle of the, the 20th century as the, the welfare state is shifting from the New Deal society in which uh, there are sort of stronger commitments to economic equality. There's, you know, minimum wage bills passed. Workers are empowered to organize under New Deal legislation. Um, there's a lot of exceptions, like there's, it's exclusive, it's predominantly geared for white men, um, but it has a premise of sort of economic equality. And by the mid, you know, 20 years later, 30 years later in the mid 1960s, that compact, that sort of the shape of the welfare state shifts to the great society programs in which equality and sort of social welfare is provided most through, um, through individual, through things like job, through opportunities, through job programs, through education initiatives. And it's instead of providing equality of outcomes, it's sort of trying to create equality of opportunities. And teachers become, so, so the welfare state kind of like education becomes one of the key institutions of the welfare state in the, in the 1960s and teachers more or less become charged as its foot soldiers. Um, to, they're, they're tasked with the work of solving equality that certainly doesn't begin in their classrooms and it doesn't end in their classrooms, but they're put in this position. And so this is kind of the, the one of the big points that I look at in my research because I kind of start my story by looking at when and how the, the teachers in Milwaukee started to unionize. Uh, Wisconsin was the first state to grant public sector workers um, collective bargaining rights in 1959. And interestingly, people that wanted that bill to dot, conservatives who were hoping to kill that bill, lobbied to get teachers included in on it in a move that they thought was going to be sure that there was no way that the teachers would be granted the rights to unionize. It would just not pass a common sense test. And so they tried to do it as this kind of like, you know, to sink the whole bill. It, they, they, um, they failed and the conservatives failed in their efforts. Um, so teachers were granted the rights, but it was somewhat paradoxical because they were granted rights they never asked for. And so it took a few years for them to get to, around to actually activating, to mobilize, to, to, to go through the process of becoming, becoming a union. Um, and in the, one of the main reasons why they decided, why a few years later, they decided like, ho-hum, let's go ahead and unionize 
was because at this point in time, the great migration of Blacks, families uh, moving from the South to the North kind of came to a head in Milwaukee and inner cities, Milwaukee all of a sudden had many more Black students. Um, the schools had, were faced with a, like big demographic changes and teachers were kind of, the schools were really underfunded, especially in the cities and teachers were kind of going out of their minds with, uh, frankly, a lot of racial fears, and they were very desperate to secure the rights to corporal punishment. They wanted to make sure they would have power in their job to administer corporal punishment to hit children um, at a moment when the demographics of children were really changing. And this was one of the reasons why, I mean, in addition to a couple of other pieces, but one of the reasons why these teachers kind of got around to becoming, to unionizing. You can see that's a pretty contradictory premise or problematic, maybe contradictory is not the right word. It's a problematic premise for a union, which the mechanism of unionism is solidarity. And then this, this is a very um, toxic form of solidarity. Um, not solidarity. Perhaps. Not solidarity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, this isn't a story that's not at all unique to Milwaukee. There's other unions that have this and there's very emblematic histories, the Ocean Hill Brownsville strike you know, some 15 years later is basically has a lot of these same dynamics in which white teachers are turning to their unions to protect their job rights at the expense of black students and families. In Milwaukee, this goes on to play like a pretty interesting role because that same dynamic happens. This is this, the instance in which, you know, the first resolution that the Milwaukee Teachers Union ever passes is to, um, in 1964, there was a lot of st students, black students in Milwaukee organized walkouts um, in, uh, in, as part of a civil rights program. The civil rights movement in Milwaukee, sort of the first, it started in the schools basically. And, and these and students were in the first wave of some of the activism. They wanted integrated schools. They wanted better conditions for the black schools. So they organized these walkouts. Well, the first resolution that the teachers ever take up in their sort of political imagination and their vision is to say, we oppose the walkouts. We think this is crazy. This is like against the, our spirit of law and order that we're here for. And so what kind of happens over and over again is that you see teachers see themselves, they've been charged with protecting the social order. They see themselves as sort of these law and order um, agents and they use their unions as the muscle to, to execute those visions. Um, and, and there's cost to this, you know, fast forward 20 years and in Milwaukee is when um, a number of black activists become extremely disenfranchised, uh, dissatisfied with public schools that have basically been ignoring them at best, mistreating them and more commonly um, and when private sort of free market uh, conservative folks in Milwaukee around the Bradley Foundation, a very conservative um, foundation begin kind of putting plans together for voucher schools, these activists become this offer the, the political uh, fuel necessary, they, they sort of are able, they catalyze the, what voucher plans into a political reality by the early 90s. Um, and then that's sort of like the beginning of this like really steep 
um, precipice for public schools and, and unions in particular. And so the story that I try to tell in my work is to kind of chart out um, what the costs of this, what, what the cost of this absence of solidarity meant for public schools. And at the same time, you know, there's also this spirit of there's in Milwaukee in particular, it, Tina, you mentioned rethinking schools and those are definitely important players in this. They were rethinking schools was a project born of Milwaukee teachers and their union. And they sort of the rethinking schools was sort of an organ that they used um, to discuss union politics and what they saw as the really narrow short-sighted racist programs of their union. Um, and it's now, you know, they've been very, that, you know, those leaders are, have grown what now is kind of considered to be a vision for social justice union and the Milwaukee teachers union, um, very much sort of students of the, the greats, the Chicago teachers union and the LA teachers union and these unions that are now really like sort of have totally flipped the script and see their work is very much tied to the, you know, building the strength of the schools is the strength of the communities and vice versa. Um, and so that's like a very long-winded way of saying, I'm interested in how that happens and how we start to see our hopes, our utopian hopes for schools, how that can become, um, how that relates to, to utopian hopes for the bigger society, let's say. Yeah. and. It, it seems like, and you mentioned this in one of your pieces, you know, the, the dream and the ideals of Brown versus Board of Education um, and the undermining of that in different ways, you know, through voucher system and um, uh, charter school movements um, and, you know, the racialized um, uh, sort of academic freedom and uh, school choice movements that you talk about in Virginia. Yeah. Um, all of, you know, it just, it, it's, it seems as if the undermining of it, especially with these big corporations and think tanks like the Heritage Foundation and the Koch brothers and all the money that's poured into this. Um, and, and, you know, you, you write really eloquently and clearly about that. And so I'd like to get you to talk a little more about yeah. where you where you see that going, especially now that we're at this um, uh, you know switch from Betsy DeVos right to Miguel Cardona, who's the uh, who's Biden's nominee for Education Secretary. Yeah, you know, are there are there any changes on the horizon? Man, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. You know, I think this is. I think we're gonna wait and see. I I don't want to. I'm reluctant to, um, you know, pronounce the the deathbed of neoliberalism in education because Betsy DeVos is out. It would be nice, but I, I think unfortunately we have a little ways to go. But I think I do think that the that you know one of the things that we saw through the 2000s, early 2000s, through the mid, you know, through Obama, was the Democrats really signing off on almost all of these programs from weakening teachers unions to reducing public funding for education to expanding um, school choice programs. And I think, you know, one of, I, th I think it sort of remains to be seen if, if that's, if that sort of 
alignment has been de- has been busted up if that's been delegitimized by um, both sort of Betsy DeVos kind of putting casting a black shadow over everything that was choice. We'll see. Um, there's a lot of Democrats that are part of her organization too. So I, I'm a little, we'll see. Um, and also I think the teachers strikes in, in 2018, 2019, I think played a really big role in shaking up what the, you know, especially like the LA and the Chicago strikes in blue states where Democrats had been in charge of sort of putting together the program that, that starved public schools and fed charter schools, voucher schools, all these kind of aberrant choice programs. Um, so I, 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 I'm hopeful, but agnostic. I haven't, and I, I'm, I've been sort of, um, I haven't been following that closely that some of the writing about Cardona, I know Lois Weiner has written something that's been an open tab um, for me for a while about situating uh, the new secretary of education in this sort of neoliberal democratic tradition of, of um, education. So I don't know how much of a break it's gonna be. And I think that's sort of, you know, it's, I think it's a good parable for probably the Biden administration writ large of like, are we gonna go, is this the third term of the Obama presidency? And if so, like I fear for 2024 and 2030, you know, what yeah, the contradictions are gonna come. Yeah. yeah. Given the choices that Obama made and well, We'll see. Yeah. It's right. going to take that kind of movement that you write about. And- yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think you're right. Well, one of the movements that you have recently written about, so you we've talked about in the, like everywhere in public discourse, particularly around higher ed and questions of the economy is this the issues of student debt, um, students, millennials, Gen X or Gen Zers, like everybody is drowning in debt. You have written this um, recent piece for the nation about how, yes, that's an important push, but what you say, you have a quote, um, institutional debt, debt of universities is the invisible architecture of higher education. So I'm wondering if you could tell us more, what do you mean by that? And mm-hmm. what is the, um, what kinds of pathways does it open up for, for movements? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> basically, you know, we know it's, it's very similar and related. It's to the issues of student debt, university debt, Institute, the, the institutional debt that universities have to take on to assume in order to cover operating costs um, is related to sort of a bigger problem of defunding public education uh, from and part of a transition um, from what the economic sociologist Wolf Graham Street talks about as the, the, the tax state to the debt state that in lieu of collecting revenue and redistributing wealth through taxes, credit has been liberalized where anybody can get a easy, it's very easy to take on debt to purchase the things from medical care to a college degree um, to a house with credit. And in, for institution, it's, it's very much the same, the same premise, um, which basically means that universities have to take borrow money to cover operating costs. And why this is a problem, why this is sort of an interesting thing is that debt creates 
above all a set of power relations um, whereby the universities are are sort of governed by the creditors and the credit rating agencies. Um, so things happen like when, when a university borrows money, it has to set aside, it usually has to set aside in, in a lot of cases for the next year it has to budget. The first thing that it budgets is what's called debt service payment. So that's the interest and the fees and, and, and portions of the principal um, to go to the creditor. So that's sort of the first debt covenants, the sort of terms that you agree to when you borrow money will often stipulate that that has to come first. Creditors have to be the first thing in line. So before workers get paid, before students tuition is set, before programs, you know, figuring out what are the, what are the curricular needs of our students? What are the curricular needs of our society? Before any of those questions get answered, in, and then figuring out how to resource them, creditors are getting paid. Um, these are usually private financial institutions, big banks, you know, like, um, and, and credit rating agencies, which are also private financial institutions, basically set the terms of how universities get disciplined by these credit rating agencies because they have to make themselves, um, a credit rating agency basically comes up with a score, like a report card to assign the likeliness of an institution to default on its loan. This is ostensibly what it is. And like a report card that, you know, probably you both in the classes that you teach, maybe you, you come up with a, a rubric for an assignment that you use because you want to, perhaps you want to incentivize a student's work. You want to make sure they have a topic sentence and an argument, you know, clearly stated in the first two pages or whatever, you know, you, you, you list all these things on the rubric because you want to incentivize their actions. And then you go and you evaluate them based on how well they've performed. This is what a credit rating agency does. They say, do you have, you know, a billion dollars in liquid assets that you can freely, that are not locked up in pay plans or tenure requirements for things. Okay, you do great. That's a good score for your, that's gonna, you know, we're gonna give you a, a star in that part of your, your credit report. Um, and so universities, you know, this is what, why it can be called, I think the invisible architecture is that the, the debt and the requirements of debt and the power relations of debt end up structuring the built environment, the moral environment that we live in, in terms of figuring out, you know, one of the things it was really, really startling for me to go through and read um, Moody's, one of the preeminent credit rating agencies to read their rating methodology that they use for higher education institutes. And to basically, I mean, they put it in very, in no uncertain terms, the stronger uh, workers are unionized and active on a university, the, the better the tenure protections, the worse the credit rating is going to be for that university. So, you know, Wisconsin, we have had a terrible governor. We have had a terrible legislature. These people are like crooks and they have done no help to our public education institutions. But they've also, some of the moves that they've made in terms of disenfranchising workers, in terms of um, changing how some of the funding structures come to the university. In some ways, they're just playing by the rules that are set by the credit rating agencies. And I think for me, that was a really key moment to see like, this is not just a problem of bad, nasty politicians or even bad, nasty administrators who have, you know, six figure salaries. 
this is a much, much bigger, um, a much bigger, this is a structural problem. Um, so it's related to the issue of student debt and a lot of times, you know, because universities are paying a lot of money for their own debt, they, they have to charge tuition higher and they use that tuition in many cases as collateral <laughs> for their debt. Um, and you can find documents that really sort of like lay this out really clearly of tuition increases and how much tuition um, and student debt is going to service institutional debt. So they're very, very linked together. Um, the difference is, is that a lot of times with institutional debt is it's, it's for one thing, it's like, it's pretty opaque. It can be like very eagerly, easily slips into the realm of technocratic ease. Um, and most of us are told like, no, no, like you don't know enough to talk about that. You don't know enough. This is not like, this is not your, this is for big kids. Go back to the little kids table, let's say. Um, and that's, a, that's part of why this is a, it's, it's, you know, me and some of my, my colleagues who've been really working and thinking about this stuff take the position that this is a really de-democratizing initiative. When universities are run on debt, it, it makes, it renders um, creditors really become, and the credit rating agencies become the, the governors of universities um, and the needs of the workers and the students and the faculty are uh, rendered null. Um, so, and then on top of it, that it's sort of kind of bracketed off for experts, financial experts, makes it a really difficult thing to try to, to drag it back into the realm of democratic deliberation. And I think that's what's, you know, what part of the point of that article was and the conversations that it's been sparking is to, to point out that this is, just like how we think about weight, how wages are part of um, sort of the, a public awareness of how people are treated um, on campus or what a university's commitment to justice and equity might be expressed through their wages. We also need to be concerned with how debt and how the debt financing is also um, an expression of, of that um, sort of commitments to, to, to justice and equality in the universities. Yeah, you, you say in this article, too, that it's important to know how to organize knowledge into power, um, which you're talking about, you know, we're at the little told to be at the little kids table and, and we're trying to find ways to, to step into that. So how do we find out um, where our universities are in terms of this debt? Can you right, tell right. listeners how do we start to get that? Yeah, so power? I, you know, some people, I have been fortunate enough to get a little bit trained up on this by people who are much, much smarter than I on this kind of stuff. And um, there, you can get really sophisticated knowledge um, and really, you know, but I, I sort of am of the school that we need to know just enough to be dangerous, no more, no less. Uh, and the point actually isn't to become CPAs or, or whatever. Uh, like we just need to know just enough basic literacy to be dangerous, <laughs> to be able to say, hey, this is not just, we know enough to know this is not right. Um, so one of the things that we talk about is sort of doing sort of like mini debt audits um, with groups of people. And, it, and the, the truth is, is that sometimes finding this information, if it's done right, can be an organizing tool of itself. Some of my 
my colleagues and comrades at Salem State University have really had this experience that they found, they got a little group of like half a dozen people together and the process of going through their university's statements and seeing like, whoa, what is happening here was really empowering for them. And far more than if they had, you know, if their union had hired some kind of audit team and the audit team had said, bah, 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 here's, your, here's the financial position of your university in terms that you can understand. It was really, it was sort of a, a moment of, um, you know, this organizing aha moment, like, oh, okay, we found something out here that we can use. Um, so I think there's something about that work that actually is really important to think. And it's not oftentimes that, you know, one of the things that I've done is that you can, especially for public universities <clears throat> and oftentimes pri like private institutions too, will have to file audits um, through, you can look, find their audited financial statements. And it's oftentimes not a lot more sophisticated than just downloading um, for public universities. It's the comprehensive uh, annual financial report. CAFR is how it's abbreviated for, for privates. It can sometimes come in a slightly different form, but something like the annual financial statement and just doing control F debt or control F debt service and just just hit on that document and see where you, it'll, you'll see something that says debt or debt service. And what we see, and, and then it's also really interesting. What I, one of the things that I found at UW that was really interesting when I found out like, okay, I see that UW is paying, UW-Madison is paying close to $100 million every year in debt service. What's $100 million for a university? I don't really know what that is. And so trying to find in proportions, what are other at, what are other things at the university that cost about $100 million? Um, that's like 3%, let's say, of the UW-Madison's annual budget. 4% um, of UW-Madison's annual budget is what they spend on their school of education. School of education at UW-Madison has nine departments. It uh, trains future educators for the state of Wisconsin. And they express almost the same commitment to funding the school of education as they do to paying the creditors, their interests and fees um, on their debts. It's just sort of insane. So that would be basically my suggestions for folks who are interested in doing this is to find your, you find sometimes even just in a budget, um, you can see this, but certainly in an audited financial statements, do a control, do a search the document for debt or debt service, find the amount, and then to, to sort of put it into relief, find something else that's a comparable amount that, <laughs> that is spent on the university um, of that proportion. And to give listeners a sense of how easy this is, Eleni, as you were just talking, I went and Googled Skidmore College. Um, what did I Google with it? Skidmore College annual financial report and found through ProPublica, you can get reports from nonprofits and found out how much debt um, are we servicing right now? $80 million at Skidmore wow. College. So, um, and uh, not per year per, I think that's, that's the whole, that's the whole debt load. Um, Agnes Scott College in like three minutes um, did the same thing. I think it's 70,000 or maybe it's 90,000 for Skidmore. Anyway, it's like up there, really high liberal arts colleges. If you were listening and you were at a liberal arts college, this is, this is why the labor pool is getting further casualized and why there are furloughs and why we're having to 
work through the pandemic um, and the pressure to be on campus. So this, thank you, Eleni, for, yeah. for giving us pointers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just for listeners, like stay tuned. We're, we're, me, we're trying to get together a network of folks that would be interested in basically having like a social media day of action where we, everybody sort of blasts, you know, using a form to say like, this is how much money our university is paying to its creditors. Like Mm -hmm. while they're furloughing workers, while students are still paying like close to full tuition, um, this is how much money. And just because part of the problem, it's not, it's not gonna stop it, but part of the issue with, um, excuse me, part of the issue with the debt and the institutional debt especially is that we've stumbled around totally oblivious to it. I mean, we have virtually no idea of what the amount is and even less idea of what the power relations that this entails, that this is a budget item that's gonna always come first. And in order to, that we're disciplined to be able to, we have to be sort of good institutional subjects in order to get access to the credit that we need to be able to run for the next year. Um, and so just trying to, there's a lot of education work that needs to be done around this issue and and popular and public education. I, 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 I take a lot of inspiration from folks that have been doing work in, in student debt cancellation, which is now, you know, like nobody needs an act. Very few people need an explanation when they say like cancel student debt. That's, you can just, that's like a sort of a mainstream talking point at this point, but 10 years ago, it wasn't the case. It was was wildly utopian. People were lunatics, to, you know, were written off as sort of like fringe crazies who called for that. And through a lot of really hard work, and, and this is, you know, the position that I take is sort of how do you make organizing educational and education or, you know, part into organizing? I see them as, as very much connected with each other. Um, but I think that's part of the, the moment that we're at right now is just there's a lot of education that we need to do to get folks ready to be able to do the organizing work to come. Yeah, as you're saying, this affects, you know, all, all branches of staff, faculty, students. I mean, and, and we're, we're, you know, told that we're separate entities. Um, and, and those uh, colleges and universities with living wage campaigns for hourly staff, for example, um, trying to get, you know, just a minimum of $15 an hour. It's been such a struggle. That's um, right. And, and the pandemic making things worse with furloughing. Um, That's right. And then, and, and then make, making some of the essential workers uh, risk their lives to be there, right? That's, that's um, right. That's right. That's right. So that's exactly right. So this is one of the other things that we talk about of like, you know, a campaign to get people to understand how much debt our universities are running on. And then also, you know, to demanding that we flip the covenants. This is sort of what one of the things that like students and workers first, creditors last. They, the banks can take a haircut before the staff do, you know, before the students have to. Um, and so to kind of put that forward as part of the part of the program, I think is going to be an important thing. And then, you know, hopefully just also calling for a moratorium, especially in the middle of the pandemic on these debt service payments. Um, it's sort of insane. I mean, it's truly insane that, that these will be first order, the university, yeah, every university's first order business will be paying interest and fees. Um, so I think, you know, this is, I, I, the thing that's interesting about this, I think, is that like a year ago, this would, year, let's say 15 months ago, this still would have been just as acute of an issue, just as, 
you know, cut just as deeply in a lot of respects, but it would have been very hard to organize around. Um, and COVID, the idea, COVID in some ways has been a great teacher and sort of opened, I think, a lot of our eyes to this at a moment when people are asking to be making even greater cuts. Um, it gives us a chance and we're, you know, there's also, there's eviction moratoriums. There's the federal government has stopped collecting interest on there's the student loans that they provide. Um, so there's some precedence that the pandemic has offered of like, yeah, this perhaps is a moment where we can kind of take, take the creditors knee off our necks and just breathe for a second. And hopefully in those moments, if we are able to get those, it gives us a chance to realize like, Oh, we could, actually have this, this, this could be more, it could be like this forever. As we, I, I feel like we could talk all day about this and compare stories from our various institutions um, so that we don't miss it. I wanna be sure that we get to a question of how, um, we've been talking about kind of big macro scale activism. How are we pushing sort of um, national slash global movements around public education. Um, I'm curious about on the micro scale, how you particularly think about your pedagogy in the classroom with students, um, yourself as a teacher and a learner in light of all of the activism that you're doing um, in your life. Yeah. Um, what are some ways that you bridge it? How do you think about, how do you think about things like grading and coming up with a class plan and um, your relationship to students and power um, given everything we've been talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's, they're not so different. I don't see them as such different spheres because the, the whole, you know, part of my curiosity and commitment to organizing is based on this idea that people that we have much more power than usually we realize. Um, and that oftentimes we just, we've, we forget, we're not given a lot of opportunities to, to claim that power. And when we are, we kind of can stumble often. Um, and I think that's true in teaching that students are oftentimes not sort of shown like, hey, you have a lot of power over what is gonna happen in your education in this space that we have together. So one of the things that I, I, I have, it's been a, a great practice for me in my classes is um, bargaining over our syllabus. Um, so usually on the first day of a class, I'll sort of present the, the syllabus to students and say like, this is like a contract. Um, we are both agreeing to these terms. You'll do this work and in exchange, I give you some grades and maybe if you're lucky, a bit of knowledge. Um, but it's not like a contract in any sense because you haven't had a chance. It's just me dictating to you what you're going to do and then sort of evaluating you on it. Um, and so I will say like, so we're going to bargain over this and I'll usually leave the room for 10 or 15 minutes and the students have a period of time to come up with demands for me, the instructor. And then that discussion becomes sort of what happens afterwards becomes a really important touchstone for the rest of the class. The students are oftentimes really taken aback, like really flummoxed, like, like they're scared to have been told like, what do you want? That's like, they're, they're terrifying. It's, it's very, we talk about why it's nervous. How did they decide what, on those demands? Was it difficult? Were, did you all agree right away? The first time I did this, it was like, can you change the deadlines from 5 p.m. to midnight? Can you like, no reading quizzes. Um, 
and we want donuts. That was the first time that I did that. <laughs> donuts on Fridays. Um, and I kind of talked to them. I was like, you guys could have said like A's for everybody. You could have said no reading. You could have like, you had the whole terrain and you came up with like pretty small asks. Like what, let's talk about the, the, hori the horizons of demands. Like, why did you, why were you so, so close? Um, and that's really interesting. It just, it, it ends up being a really interesting conversation that I'm, you know, in a lot of my classes become big themes of the class of like, what, how did you decide that? What were their tensions? I've had times when, um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Internal, this is like, becomes a question of internalized oppression. Exactly. Um, that, that folks are just uncomfortable and unpracticed at sort of claiming power and especially doing it in a, in a collab, in a collective way, in a collaborative way. I, you know, have had classes where there's sort of a lot of dissents. I can, there's sort of different caucuses. Some students are really scared to, to ch challenge the teacher and other students are like much more ready to kind of fire away at things. So, um, I guess that's that's one thing that I tr I try to build in things like that um, um, as much as I can. I think it's really, really, really valuable um, and something that, frankly, we all need a lot more practice on of sort of sitting down and thinking like, okay, what do we have? What are what do we have control over here? What do we not? And what can we do about that? It's like a very complicated questions for humans to sort out. I can imagine right now. Be, so. I came up, Tina was, uh, is, continues to be a mentor to me through college. And we did a thing at Agnes Scott where um, a group would come into the room, student mediators, and do a syllabus review at the beginning of every semester mm. while the professor was out of the room. So like, mm. does the syllabus make sense? What, what doesn't? What seems fair? What seems unfair? And have that conversation and then the mediators would convey that yeah. in a in an anonymous way yeah. to um, the instructors and they were available throughout the semester. So like I did that as a student and I'm hoping to, to like create some sort of system like this at Skidmore College, but of course that has to be student led. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we get all the time when we talk about this is, well, like, you know, wouldn't students just say, we don't want to do any reading at all? Or wouldn't they say like, everybody gets an A and, um, I wonder how you respond to things, how you respond to the sort of those naysaying um, immediate sort of antagonization of students as customers who want too much without paying. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, the last time I did this, I had a class that were really smart. Oh man, these were great kids. And they had made it, and they were really savvy and they said they wanted not, they wanted to have the right once a week, they wanted to have 10 minutes to re-bargain over the syllabus. So they were smart to know they didn't want it just to be a one and done thing. They wanted to be able to return to the table. Really, really smart and really fun to get to keep these conversations going. And by the end of the semester, they had a lot more confidence than they did at the beginning of the semester. And they had a lot more skills up to how to negotiate. And they came at me and they were like, we want, all of us want A's on our final projects. And I actually really don't care about grades in my class. So I was probably going to, the truth was probably going to give them all A's anyways, but it became a great bargaining chip for me because I was able to think about it and explain, I, you know, walk them through this. I was like, okay, what would be the cost for me of giving that to you? This was in a lot of the negotiations. I try to, 
you know, really sort of play up what it's, what the thinking process of a bad boss is and like really try to play up. Like, what are the costs for me if I give you all A's? And, you know, I asked them that and they have smart responses of like, well, we could, we could slack off. We could not take it seriously. We could not do this. And I was like, yeah, exactly. So what could I do to ensure, how can I get your need met to have an A, but my need meant that you take it seriously. And we came up with a, an agreement that they would submit an artist statement with their projects where they described the risks that they took in their project and how they grew as a result of doing that project. And it was perfect. It was like so great. I loved it. It was a delight to read, but I think something like that really was helpful to realize like the issue isn't, A's don't necessarily reward it's a bad, we're, we're operationalizing oftentimes the wrong thing. We give people A's or B's or C's or whatever, because we're oftentimes, it, it, that may or may not correlate to what students are learning, how they're growing. And, and I think honestly, the risks that people are taking a lot of times, you know, in, I was, this is a Middlebury college, which is a very selective elite college. These students are very interested in, um, performing well and the idea of taking meaningful risks and structured risks is not something that I think a lot of young people are given an opportunity to do in their education and sort of encouraged to do in in safe ways so it was it was I think that, that I, I would I would um, definitely return to that practice for sure of, of even if students don't demand it just say like the great you know if, and, I th and I think this is, I haven't, I haven't yet experimented with ungrading, but I'm understanding that this is some of the premise of that, of putting your sort of hand over the reins to students and say, okay, you're in the power to say what you want to get out of this class and, and help figure, you know, I, this is my, I, it's something that I'm excited to get to, to, um, to, to, to play with. I don't know if perhaps you, you all have had experience with that. I don't know. Yeah, we've both done ungrading. Yeah. Yeah. I've done it in different ways, you know, through contact track grading, but I, I got full blown converted last. Oh, great. Yeah. A hybrid pedagogy conference. Yeah. Oh, cool. There's, there's a lot, um, a lot of details to it, but yeah. I want to ask because you are, um, you mentioned uh, COVID as a teacher. Yeah. Um, how has it influenced your pedagogy? Did you have to pivot to online or dual mode? And you know, what difference has that made and how's yeah. it changed you? And what have you learned as a teacher from that? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I have, to me, it's been the, the, the issue of teaching online and teaching online in the middle of a pandemic of just needing to make sure that like, you're setting up classes such that people are, you know, that people are being like to really put the students in their full lives at the center of the class. And if that wasn't your practice before, I hope that pandemic helps bring that to you. Um, so some, I think one of the things that I try to have tried to keep in mind um, is just to think about like, okay, what's the one learning goal I want students to, to have? <laughs> and every, and then the rest of it is like keeping, keeping people alive. Like if I, if there's only one thing that students walk away from this class, I guess, I guess maybe it's like kind of lowering expectations in a certain way in order to make space for the really complex things that folks are, are dealing with right now from 
sickness to financial problems to mental health, you know, everything is just, I think that's sort of a premium. And in some ways online, I, I, you know, I don't prefer online to in-person, but I think, I think there's some, it does afford some things that I appreciate. I've watched students kind of seem, there's some students who I think are more willing to engage in online forums than they would in in in-person forums. And it's a space that really helps them kind of come forward. And I'm, you know, that's great. That's great that it works. I think it really does work well for some people. so yeah, some combination of just being really flexible and accommodating and lowering expectations and just building practices for people to connect. I think that's also a big thing too, is folks are oftentimes really lonely and isolated and just how do you set up classes? Like the, the goals of sort of building inclusive community classes, I think are really at a premium in, in COVID. Um, that's, that's sort of my two cents on it. I'm noticing the time. Um, is there anything we haven't asked you that you're like, we haven't asked, the, they haven't asked me this and I really wanted to mm. tell this story or share this thing? I don't, no, I don't think so. It's like a really comprehensive, I mean, I would be thrilled to get to chat more with you all for, for, you know, wish we were in front of a fire. I mean, I'm in Montreal and it's very snowy here. We need a fire and a hot drink. So mm-hmm. maybe to continue the conversation. No, I, I can't think of anything that, that um, y'all missed out on that what's, I want to address. Well, what's next for you and your research? Oh, that's a great question. Oh yeah. Um, I want to look at the, how, um, the issues of institutional debt affect uh, public schools and how teachers unions have been able to respond to that. Um, So the next project that I'm gonna work through is looking at how um, institutional debt, um, municipal debt and um, institutional debt in the Chicago public schools became sort of like a bargaining point for the Chicago teachers union. They started to, inc- they led this whole campaign to try to, to, to negotiate over the interest rates, um, that the, that their, that CPS was taking on for part of their, the, the loans that they had been securing, um, and so I'm curious about that of like, how does this become, how do these issues of institutional debt, how do, how do unions take them up and to what effect? And also, and part of that research, I think is also hopefully gonna look at how housing debt relates to school debt. So in places like Chicago, where there's all been a lot of um, foreclosures um, and connections between foreclosed um, homes and closed underfunded public schools, uh, trying to understand how those things are related to each other. We'll That's see. Important yeah. Work. yeah. Um, especially, I mean, especially when you sort of think like the complement of that as institutions, as um, higher ed institutions, as these landlords um, right. in cities. That's right. Um, yeah. And building moats around their property and all of that. Yeah. 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 That's, that's a good point. Yeah. And forces. Um, Oh, right. Yeah, and the abolition movement that some colleges and universities are are activating now, thank goodness. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right, it's about time. 
Yeah. Well, as our last question, we always ask our guest, um, what are you reading or watching or listening to or otherwise consuming that you would want to put out in the world uh, for folks to maybe also check yeah. out? Yeah, let's see. Um, I'm reading, I'm a little late to the game on this, but I'm reading The Problem with Work by Kathy Weeks, which is really, really excellent. Really, really appreciating that. Um, and I finished the novel by William Maxwell called So Long, See You Tomorrow, which was just beautiful and heartbreaking. And as soon as I finished it, I started it right back from the beginning. So those would be, and, I, and I'm also um, currently watching Better Call Saul, which is <laughs> really good. <laughs> those are my, those are, that's, where, that's where I'm spending my time when I'm not on a screen right now. Well, yeah. My father will not stop telling me to watch Better Call Saul with him, but it sounds a little too like intense for me. Since Did I you watch Breaking Bad? I actually haven't. I shouldn't okay. admit that on the media, but you know, here I am saying I have not watched. Breaking I don't Bad. think it's worth your time if you haven't watched Better. If you haven't watched Breaking Bad, that would okay. be my opinion. Okay, great. That's what I'll tell him. Yeah, tell him you have to watch Breaking Bad first, and then then yeah. Then yeah. Then. <laughs> yeah. Tina, what's on your list? Well, I am watching Borgen. It's a Danish show about uh, on Netflix about uh, a woman prime minister. Mm. Issues around sexism and trying to, you know, work-life balance and um, and how she navigates this crazy parliamentary system. So I'm learning a lot about the the Danish parliamentary system. Um, and then um, I am reading Gianni Rodari's Telephone Tales. I do fantasy studies because I do apocalyptic literature, uh, Bible and culture stuff. And so um, this, he wrote these uh, stories to his, the premises, a father writing stories to his daughter uh, of, and he's travels. And so he does it over the telephone and for the amount of time that the coin will last, he tells these postmodern uh, fairy tales. Um, and Rodari has a um, grammar of fantasy, a fantasy theory book uh, coming out next year or this year sometime. And I'm excited about that. So um, it, at, you know, given all this going on in the state of Georgia, it was good to have a, a minute to go into some fantasy. We should mention that we are recording this on... Blue January 6th, as apocalypse continues to unfold in Washington, D.C., and um, as we declare, we, Georgia, we, we are, we, all the love goes to Georgia. I was going to recommend, I was just going to say that I've been listening to Outcast all day um, <laughs> in celebration. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'll, that's what I'll, I went cross-country skiing this morning to a Georgia soundtrack. It was, it was a great way to spend the morning. Okay, Lucy, what are reading? Huh? What are no, you that, that was going to be, well, I guess I can say what I'm reading too. Um, I, okay, so I, this book that I finished, has anybody read um, Nothing to See Here by Kevin... Oh yeah, about the kids who burst up in flames. Yeah. Um, yes, it's so good. It's so good. Um, yeah. Kevin Wilson is the yeah. name of the author and it's about, it, it, it involves three of my favorite things. Um, 
boarding schools. I love reading about boarding schools. It's like a pedagogy, like, like pink of mine is like what happens at boarding school. Um, basketball, loving basketball. Eleni, everyone who's listening also writes for ESPNW. This is how I first encountered your writing. Um, uh, okay, so basketball, um, boarding schools and children who um, catch on fire, spontaneously combust when they're angry, mostly. Um, and, and also it's written by um, a professor at Suwannee College in Tennessee um, about a really wealthy, bougie, like Tennessee lawmaking family. Um, and I'm from Tennessee. So it's, it, it, it like scratches it, every itch. He apparently sat down and wrote it in like a week or something. Like It definitely feels like some sort of like cathartic event on the part of the author. Like he just like needed to say something perhaps about, perhaps about his university. Like that's kind of what I thought when I thought, hmm. this is the place where like on Fridays, everybody in the National Honor Society or in the Honor Society at Sewanee, they make the kids go around in their um, regalia or like in their robes. It's like very like Southern masculinity land. Um, so I just sort of assumed that Kevin Wilson, that was like his therapy to write that book. Maybe he's listening and we'll call in and tell us <laughs> if we get a hotline. It might scratch one of your fantasy itches, Tina. Yeah. It's got it That's right. fantastical premises yeah. to it. It's good. Recommendations. <laughs> Thank you, Eleni, for, for being on the podcast. Thank you guys so much. It's really an honor. Thank Good you way to so start the new year. Yeah. 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 Onward. And thank you, Tina, for bringing us hopefully a little bit more hope for the future as a Georgia voter. You've been listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippin, co-host along with Lucia Holsether. Our podcast was with Eleni Shermer of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Aaliyah Harris is our audio engineer, and the intro music is by Lance Eric Hagen, performed by Lance Eric Hagen and Aviva and the Flying Penguins. Our outro music this time is by Acrasis, Mark McKee on beats and trumpet, and Max Bowen raps and guitar. The title of the outro music is Innermost Jewelry, available on Children Singing in Hell, and that's available on bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Empathy is entropy, very resentful sentiments in our collective lethargy. Too immature to handle love or emerging love handles. Fill the suburban china cabinets with decorative empty urns. That's where we hide our emptiness in plain sight. Fictional turban clad Arabs incinerate picturesque off-white ideologues that clog the blogosphere. When I feel down, I use my imagination, and my imagination uses me up. Life is something.
something I remember more than something I live. A bright future is one soaked in nostalgia. Love tore us apart. Indifference brings us together. This average lifespan of 70-some Novembers. Where did this year go? And the past few, too. Gentle people end up alone, selectively removed from the rest till they can't pose a threat despite their copious diary entries exposing this unaddressed regret. Aimlessness manifests as an unswerving march towards death. 